Hello, what's up, what's up? Welcome to The One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Roncarlo Sohano, and I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy. Um, and please practice still, practice safety precautions, you know what? Just like, stay for everyone. All right, so reminder that um, this Sunday, our final bonus episode. We are going to discuss Cold War as a part of the 2018 retrospective where we talk about the films nominated alongside Roma. So I'm, I hope you check that out. All right. So for this episode, we're going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 45th Academy Awards. That film is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie or in its original language. Uh, I'm just going to practice. Le Charme Discret de la Bourgeoisie. So good. Co-written and directed by Louis Buñuel. So this was France's fifth win and 13th nomination. So for a quick summary, I usually do like quick summaries of films. But in the case of this film, there's no summary. It's basically six middle class people trying to have a meal together. But they always get interrupted. That's the film. I, I, there's no summary and you will, will explore more on that as we go along uh, and why that is. Um, all right. So that is the film that is drawn with the bourgeoisie. So Argus for this episode is from the Philippines. He's a filmmaker and editor and a longtime colleague and friend of mine. I'm so happy to have him on this episode. Please welcome JM Hamisola. Hi JM. Thank you so much for joining me. <coughs> Hello, Carlos, and uh, hello, everyone listening to the One Inch Barrier. Yay! All right, so I'm so happy to have you here because, um, in our very exclusive clique, um, NJ Nunez already guested in the 2006 episode, and our other person friend Alejo Barbaza already guested in 1975. So they were asking me, when is Jim gonna uh, gonna join? When is he? When is he gonna join? And I'm like, I'm shutting up because he's already booked. So I'm so happy to have you here. And can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet and whatever you want to plug? And I'm happy to be here too. And uh, if you want to check out uh, where you can find me, I have a I have a few links you might want to follow. So. There's my Vimeo account, vimeo.com uh, slash Michael C. Hamisola. That's my full name. Uh, it's not uh, really updated, but it contains uh, the bulk of my student work from when we were back at uh, film school. And the other two links are from my girlfriend, uh, Christine Silva. She goes by the online name uh, Frameweaver. So there's her Instagram account, uh, instagram.com slash Frameweaver. And uh, her website, which contains her film thesis undergraduate film thesis, uh, frameweaver.com. So you might want to check that out. All right. There you go. So, uh, yes, film school friends. Yay! <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, we've been... Oh, my gosh. I just want to tell the listeners before we proceed that um, JM here gave me my acting break. Wow, Char! <laughs> 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 but I am... <laughs> woo! Woo! You know, after like I know like we there's a backstory in that to involve that, like it was born out of like conversations and I mean I think I was oversharing and that became like <laughs> one of the things that became your film, and I'm still so happy because yes, exactly yeah it's one of the few cases in my life 
where I acted in a film not by me. So that's always interesting that I know I can deal with my own insecurities. Diary! <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> We go long way back. So I am yes, excited um, to have you here. Now, this film that is Great Charm, The Bourgeoisie, um, I don't know. I mean, I was kind of itching of inviting you for this podcast, but um, I guess after seeing your thesis film, which is a wonderful film, um, I kind of got an inkling that I should probably have you on this episode. Um, I don't know if... What's your relationship with Luis Buñuel? Have you seen his works before? What What do you think of his works or whatever? Okay, so... Uh, I've seen this film before. Uh, I have watched it. Uh, I watched it with my girlfriend either during the production of my undergraduate thesis film or maybe right after. It's around that time. Uh, it was really helpful because my uh, even uh, whether during the process or in retrospect, it's really helpful because my thesis film uh, is also a surreal comedy. It's not uh, directly influenced by bourgeoisie, but uh, uh, it, the structure the structure would have helped if I watched it uh, during production. Uh, my undergraduate thesis film is uh, about a comedian who has lost his touch, his luster. So one day he discovers that uh, there was a, a machine that can record his ideas directly unfiltered by uh, other mediums such as film, television. So he decides to take a, a trip through his uh, ideas, through his memories. So uh, since this being uh, structured on his uh, brain, brain uh, a journey through his brain, uh, It makes sense that uh, the structure of the film would be based on surreal comedy. So I really have an affinity for similar works. Uh, I'm partial towards them. Uh, and this uh, made watching uh, uh, The Street Charm of the Bourgeoisie uh, even uh, more charming, if I may say so. Uh, truth be told, uh, I've only seen two of his works, uh, the short film, uh, the classic Unshe uh, and Andalou, which I think everybody who studies film has seen before. And uh, this one, I, I've also seen this uh, uh, particular film before. I saw the discrete charm of the bourgeoisie, I think, either uh, when I was in the middle of making my thesis film, either that time or right afterwards. So. Uh, it it's really easy for me to enjoy uh, watching films like uh, the both that you mentioned because I I really have I really have an I'm I'm very partial to films with a surreal comedy bent either so comedy is one thing but when you try to actively like when you try to actively infuse the The comedy with the with self awareness. I think comedy in film is really elevated when uh, when you infuse it with self awareness, with the uh, with the uh, knowing 
that it is part that is part of a uh, created uh, reality a manufactured reality so uh, when even when even conventional uh, not necessarily comedies when even conventional films uh, feel the need to like sides uh, side eye the audience <laughs> or be aware that uh, be aware of uh, that they're following uh, basic uh, filming conventions like it really elevates the material for some reason i can't really explain but i guess that's the appeal of surrealism <laughs> so seeing a uh, seeing a film like this uh, a full length film which didn't fall flat which uh which make, made sense even if it, it doesn't make sense <laughs> it's really an achievement for me uh it's really an enjoyable experience watching it and i feel that uh, one should really like try if one is interested in filmmaking one should really try making something like this even just as an exercise just to explore the possibilities of what uh, film can be yeah um <laughs> you know i there's so much element there's so many elements that can be played with you know in this kind of like style and uh um, I kind of saw how playful your film was, you know, and I and you know when I was in film school, I was like I don't know shirt for shirt, and I don't know like styles, and you know sometimes when we talk about in film school like theories or like oh this is this movement uh, in a film movement, I'm like I I don't get it, <laughs> so like I'm just like I'm just gonna watch more films and hopefully I would understand what it means. And then when I saw your film and just how playful it was, and then something clicked with me because when I saw. Um, the first Bunuel that I saw, aside from Ushawan and the Lou, which I also saw in film school, and yes, I closed my eyes when they slit the eye, and yes, I don't remember much <laughs> of it. Um, uh, the, the the that obscure object of desire, because you know, doing this podcast backwards, <laughs> I first watched his later work in '77, and I thought just like I want to, I want to uh, hear from someone who, uh, I didn't know that you really had you know, seen Bunuel before and maybe consider him one of his influences or like um, one of his films you watched when making your film. Um, I would say that I'm probably not that kind of person who would make those films, but it's really fun when you get to see, you know, in as much as our brain as like um, film goers try to make sense of things and films like this actively avoid trying to make logical sense and it not making sense makes sense if you know what i mean so that paradox of like paradox to the casual conversation yeah exactly yeah so what um this is a rewatch for you uh what changed now or like what is your reaction now to this film hmm Whenever I watch a film for the first time, I think everyone experiences this. Uh, even when you're in for a good time, you feel a slight anxiety because you really don't know what will happen next. Even if you accidentally read, uh, I guess, a spoiler, this apparent age of uh, spoiler-free uh, consumerist uh, type of uh, film going. Uh, even the spoiler will only like ruin the ending, like, like the big plot point. It won't ruin the nuances. 
maybe except if you let it ruin your viewing experience but uh like knowing that uh something big is going to happen will not change how you how the flow of information from screen to your eyes uh, will flow but it won't change the how you receive the information you get from watching the film so so when i are watching uh bourgeoisie i really just focus on the parts that i know will make me laugh and there really are many parts uh I, I watch it with uh, my girlfriend. We watch it both for the first time. And um, we shared. <laughs> uh, we, we really shared the moments we felt uh, will be worth rewatching. As, uh, as I was uh, rewatching it again, I was uh, sharing with my girlfriend. Uh, oh, I'm at this part. This is our favorite part. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, she remembers it quickly. <laughs> So it really, films like this uh, really leave, uh, leave an impact. So I guess for this rewatch, I just uh, went with it. And uh, that's actually the fun thing with rewatches. Uh, sooner or later, even the most serious film will become a comedy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Because uh, you've studied uh, every... With every watch, you get to study the, every intricate detail. So when you strip all those uh, serious uh, aspects away, uh, you get you you really get to undress. Uh, if you could undress a film with the clothing being the all the seriousness imparted in it, but you would uh, what you would see is a uh, a collection of actors and. Uh, I guess when you like strip a film to its essentials, uh, when you strip it of its uh, serious aspects of its seriousness, what's really left in the screen eventually is the knowledge that these are a bunch of actors uh, receiving direction from an unseen uh, director. And uh, the moment you are aware of the camera, uh, the surrealism, the inherent surrealism of film sets in. So what more with the film which is very, very self-aware, like this one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, with this film, I, I was, I had to prepare myself to just stop. <laughs> just stop trying to make sense. Stop trying to uh, overthink. Just have to go with it. Like you said, just have to go with it because um, this is a, a film that bends its own rules with a point you know it's not it's not a sign of weakness of the filmmaking or the storytelling but it is the point of the filmmaking that these characters are intentionally being lost somewhere and yes. we are seeing how um like i said the artifice is being unpacked in the context of the story and the film out you know as as it is taken as a film because this film is, you know, for all purposes, all purposes, it's, I think it's a critique. You know, it's it's a critique, or maybe I don't think, we, maybe it is a critique and I, I don't have to think about it. It is a critique because it is talking about the bourgeoisie and um, how that artifice of that middle class so um, society life 
and how their privilege is being deconstructed the same way that the film is a deconstruction of how a film should actually play out because the normal rules of filmmaking are broken and we also are kind of like being fucked you know because these characters are lost and if a person doesn't have it doesn't get on board with this film you're also like wait what's happening and i'm like yeah that is the point um what do you think what do you think of this film um because I, I I have a feeling that it's in as much as it's fun, it's funny, and it's it's a ride. You know, I I mean I admire it at arm's length. I can't say that I love it, but it's such a fun <laughs> time to be in. Um, what can you say about it being uh, loaded with potential symbolisms of? Or critique and how does it work in those layers how does it work in in a film or in a storytelling style that on a surface level don't make sense okay um you have to see when it comes to uh, works like this they could easily hide behind the the excuse that they're not really going uh, going out to represent anything to make fun of anything but but by making fun of the medium by twisting it around and making it a making it a jumbled okay when you have a film like this where uh, from the get go the structure of the film is uh, being made fun of it's being twisted around uh, you can expect the audience to develop also uh, a feeling that the this usual group of band of characters, uh, the way they're usually depicted, will also be deconstructed. So these are supposed to be uh, pillars of society, paradigms of society, uh, especially uh, especially European, you know, uh, European society uh, back then. Is very hierarchical and uh, rigid. So you have the church, you have the state, you have this uh, powerful, powerful, powerful people, and uh, they are usually depicted uh, like gracefully, I guess. And then uh, all of a sudden, they are they are shown right after backing a uh, like a lower class uh, servant. Then they are shown to be. To be bigger fools than the ones they are mocking, so it's really not hard to see that even though you can't follow the story quite well, that uh, Bunuel, is, Bunuel was out to to mock these uh, characteristics of uh, the upper high, uh, upper middle class. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, it is a more cunning way of pointing at them uh but it is a it, it's sharp but it's it's a it's an unexpected way because um instead of attacking them merely he is uh playing um or gaming them or toying them around and i think it's even a more i don't know it's a, it's a, it's a more striking criticism when you're when you let 
the characters experience the ridiculousness of their lives and their place in society. And um, I know we speak as if like this is a, a very politically laden film, which it is, but the film really lays it out through absurd scenarios that just like and because and we because us it, at least initially our allegiance is with the characters when things don't make sense for them we it also doesn't make sense for us but then that is um turned for us to see like why do we even care about these people who are so out of touch with the world and Again, this is me trying to make sense of something that didn't make sense when I was watching it. So, woo! But, <laughs> you know, there is so much here. I mean, the the dinner that is being uninterrupted is just one part of it. That's that's the funniest... I think that's the running joke is that they just can't have anything to eat. Even tea and dinner or even tea... Or milk. Tea and coffee and milk. Tea and coffee, like nothing. And then you also see um, that's happening. And then when they, the first time they want, um, oh, the first time they wanted to eat, there was a misunderstanding. It's not to be tonight. It's supposed to be tomorrow night, but let's eat anyway. But they went to a restaurant which has a funeral inside. I'm like, when I first saw that, I'm going to be in a ride. Um <laughs> And then it just kept on going and going and going. And we saw how that dining thing, they just never get it. And I think it's a signi- it's it's a, it's significant because I think in upper the upper echelons of society, the act of dining is not just catching up. It's not just eating. It's it's almost like a status symbol. Yes. The dining, the act of It's a passive together. show. Of, it's a passive uh, show of force. Yeah. Especially, uh, like as you can see, uh, I think since time immemorial, when uh, power, when power relations were established, uh, can have a uh, upper class people e- eating without uh, somebody feeding them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Uh, and uh, I think. In a conventional story, if uh, if the film was out to set the workers' uprising or revolution, like uh, their servers, their servants and uh, maids, they would be the ones disrupting the the dinner. They would uh, stop uh, preparing the meals. They would uh, start. Uh, they would start uh, blocking these uh, rich people from having a good time. But here instead. Uh, The film form is what uh, does it for them. Yeah, and that's uh, that's that's brilliant. That's a really yeah. brilliant way to to introduce. Uh, it's basically a a way of class conflict, except that uh, you're God and you're toying with these uh, supposedly powerful people. <laughs> When someone gets elevated to that position. Uh, You could really think up of many ways to stop these people from uh, enjoying their meals. You know? Yeah, it's almost as if the film is an act of aggression towards the bourgeoisie. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Bunuel is like, he's so cunning because it's not it, the absurdity is so patiently laid out. You know, 
it's not one bonker situation to the other. He's establishing characters. And then because he is disrupting the form, like you said, which I love what you said about, about it's Bunuel disrupting the dinner. It's it's no one in the it's no one um it's no one uh, I mean there are some characters who would be like like I said that mm. the no no coffee, no tea, no milk. Yes, yes. But those are subtle. The huge acts of disruption are the ones that come out of the logic of the world. And that can only come from the master behind the the, the auteur behind this film, which is Bunuel. And you know, I remember that the title, like this title, the Disky Trump, it's almost it's like a it's a um, <laughs> I don't know. Is it not condescending or like uh, I don't know if it's the right word. It's it's a passive aggressive um, yes. title. Oh, the discreet charm, the bourgeoisie, <laughs> and then you play and um, disrupt what makes the bourgeoisie flourish, and then we rethink as audience like, oh, we're not with them. We are with the film that's disrupting them. Or maybe you're the well, maybe the viewer is with the bourgeoisie. I don't know. Um, <laughs> good for them, I guess. But there's also this lots of layers here, and um, I won't. I don't know how to touch on this because this is um, a political thing in the seventies. You know, Bunuel coming from Spain, and this was in the middle of like the Francoist dictatorship in Spain, and then we do see um, the ambassador. Coming from a Republic of Miranda, a fictional one, but um, they're dealing with terrorists. They have fascism at home, from home. And um, it just made things interesting for me that this person here is our main character. And the filmmaker is coming. This film is clearly political in the slyest of sense. It's the most cunning way of political filmmaking. And then to address the political situation in such a matter, in such a manner, um, how do you think of what do you think of that? You know the way the film works in that fictional republic that uh, is fascist government, actually. So the, the Republic of Miranda was, uh, I think, uh, meant to represent a fictional South American country or Latin American country. So. <clears throat> It is a vestige of uh, former colonial power, which most likely is uh, Bunuel's uh, homeland, uh, which is which was then under the command of uh, the dictator uh, Francisco Franco. So it's actually easier for Bunuel to choose this uh, this uh, foreign uh, interloper into French affairs as his main character. Uh, for on uh, since this is a uh, French production, I think he can also relate with this uh, ambassador and uh, show how even in how even in uh, in a bourgeois uh, bourgeois society there is a, there are uh, divisions. So there are still hierarchies uh, at the top. So this is uh, a bit, uh, this is especially showcased in the scene where uh, they were having a dinner in the colonel's uh, home, and all the French people started to all the French characters started to gang up on the Mirandan ambassador 
uh, which she took particularly of uh, which she took particular offense in. Yeah, that that ambassador is really <laughs> also a, a point of aggression by characters, and you know because that ambassador is dealing with a potential terrorist as well, and in the film, and we see him dealing with that. And you know, ultimately, he has he is actually the one who pulls the gun, and shoots someone. So, who the f really is a terrorist here? And he's bringing the fascism from home to here. It's in it's in, it's in Paris, right? Yes. Yeah, it's set in Paris, but there is an embassy in the Republic of Miranda. Um, going back to you know that the context of where this is operating, of course, you know I would surrender um, to the fact that um, I can only grasp general idea on what's happening at the time on where Bunuel might be operating um, with this film. However, I also just noticed mm, you know in the scenes where they were trying to eat or like get something to drink there's always an interruption of a military character. Um, either there's a, a lieutenant or someone yes. who um, who would tell his dream or something. And I think it is a reminder that, you know, in in a time like this, where even in a place, even in a, a place in time when the bourgeoisie think they're flourish, um, the military presence is always there it's it's interrupting it they think they benefit from it or, or or maybe it's a harmless element for them but it's there and you know the conjunction between the bourgeoisie and the military is strong and you compound that with uh <laughs> with the one senor <laughs> i mean the one senor is another character that um <laughs> Full of shirt because this Monsignor don't make sense. He he's a Monsignor, but he applied to be a gardener for these bourgeois couple family that the bourgeois couple that um was struggling to have a place where they could have sex while their guests are downstairs. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know the the bourgeois. Z, <laughs> the bourgeois Z, the bourgeoisie, the military, the church, these elements that come here in a ridiculous fashion, they add up in some subconscious level for me. What do you think of that um, military presence, the religious presence that kind of adds <laughs> to their lives, you know, that interrupts them? Actually, uh, yes, like I mentioned before, uh, it really is, uh, it really showcases the hierarchy, especially. Uh, yes, like I pointed before, uh, these uh, characters are usually uh, lumped together with the upper classes, and they form a part of the hierarchy of society, uh, where. Especially in France, where they actually overthrew a monarchy, mm-hmm. because uh, because the interests of the majority of the people were not being uh, were not being taken seriously. 
So uh, in that division, in the division of society back then, uh, yes, there's a nobility and there's the clergy and there's the, the rest of the French population. Uh, while, while the French Revolution really like, trimmed away yeah, and <laughs> really trimmed away a lot of the inequalities present there, but it also kept uh, some of those and uh, it never really went away. So even in uh, even uh, almost 200 years uh, since the revolution, you will still see uh, like powerful people in cahoots uh, with the clergy, with the, with the armed forces. So I can actually I can actually say that uh, it's like they're it's like they cannot it's like they cannot uh, make do without these people. When they try to, uh, when they try to have a thing all to themselves, uh, they, these uh, groups will really have to be included. So there's really, uh, especially in the introduction of the of the bishop of the monsignor. At first, he came as a as himself, wearing uh, all his uh, regal. Uh, robes and everything, and then he disguised himself as a common folk, uh, as a common uh, person, a gardener. So when he introduced himself to the, uh, when he introduced himself to the couple, they didn't take him seriously. But only then, only when he returned to his uh, usual uh, costume, did they drop all. Uh, they adopted all pretense and oh, we're, we're sorry, we apologize. Hypocrites. But, yes. <laughs> Their, their personalities were laid bare when he, he was in disguise. So these people really tried on uh, putting on airs. Like they have to put up, uh, I'm sure they were displeased with, uh, with the sudden entrance of a uh, uh, platoon, like going uh, a day in advance, camping on their house and uh, making do with their provisions because they have to undergo military maneuvers. Uh, in very proximate, in very close proximity to the house. I think uh, the uniforms, like either the regalia, the royal, the either the priestly robes of the bishop or the or the army fatigues of the military. Uh, so you have to see that uh, the upper class is not uh, really just formed of uh, the snobbish and rich uh, stereotype. Uh, it also uh, mainly deals with power and uh, people in positions of power, uh, power over people's other people's lives. Uh, these are also shown uh, in uh, the film, trying to intrude into their uh, little uh, clique. So for the ever since the bishop was introduced, uh, he's a semi-central character. He was part of. Uh, the dream sequence where it is suddenly revealed they're acting in a stage. And yeah. uh, <laughs> the bishop was trying to the bishop was trying to participate in the play, in the fake play. Uh, whereas the other people, most of the uh, upper class people just left immediately. <clears throat> and uh, when the colonel uh, invited uh, the friends, the these uh, affluent friends 
this affluent group. When he the colonel invited them to dinner at his house, uh, they became the they became the uh, they became the intruders in a sense. Yeah. Uh, you know that the surrealism here, and then like you mentioned that scene, you know, in the in the theater. I know that um, I'm reading some very uh, reliable sources here, um, it, like Wikipedia, and then you know, uh, Bunuel would throw in one of his dreams when he needs an extra scene. And one of those is like a dream of being on stage and forgetting his lines. But, you know, like you said, when you have a commentary like this and you're choosing to tell it this way, in as much as it's fun to play around, you have to also be so conscious with what you're putting out. Yes. Because the absurdity still has to make a point. Uh, in the scene, you know, with the theater, um, it's also, I don't know, for me, it's to show that this bourgeois life is a performance of everyone involved. That not everyone really wants to be with one another, but they are doing these things together and performing <laughs> to maintain their status. Yes. Yes, that's a good um, one. Yeah, and you know, with with several of the, the 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 more surreal scenes here, which I'm trying to make sense, even though I couldn't. For example, that the piano torture, um, you know, uh, it's it's a ridiculous scene, but also like very graphic as well, because you know when the the man was trying, they were trying to crush the man inside the the piano and then there were like cockroaches could come out it's not as if i'm alien to cockroaches <laughs> but there is this grotesque quality of the torture and it's being interpreted in the film in a different way yes. it's 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 lack of adherence to realism strengthens the film's point that torture in this kind of society is grotesque that the bourgeois lifestyle is hollow and full of hurt that is when the style of the film makes sense because it's not you know it's not even just like a uh you know it, it's not Bunuel playing around. I mean, he could be playing around at the time as well. But it's not just him playing around. It's not self-indulgent. It's not masturbatory. It is trying a different way. Like you know, you know, we have those stories, for example, about uh, I don't know. Um, there are some topics in life, I guess. Uh, you know, real, real topics in life. That sometimes the best way to discuss that is through horror, or through science fiction. Um, you know, with uh, you know Kubrick does that so well. You know, with his like <laughs> this guy Kubrick is so good in shifting genres. Like for example, The Shining is about I, I don't know if it's 
uh, now I'm scared of like saying like themes of the film because I'm gonna be like so scrutinized. For example, two thousand one, a space odyssey. What is it about? It's about civilization and mm-hmm. how we grow or not. <laughs> and then um, the shining is about isolation and what else? Breakdown of a family. Only... Yeah, breakdown of a family. I think those are my only two two Kubricks at this time. <gasps> but anyway, you know, Kubrick was able to use science fiction and horror to bring his point harder, more memorably. And I think Bunuel does the exact same thing here. Not not copying Kubrick, but to use as a, a style of filmmaking. It's it's surrealist comedy. I mean my mom is like a stickler for realism. So she, this is one of those cases because my mom watches everything with me. She stayed with, I'm going to get, I'm trying to get ahead of myself, but like she stayed with me for three and a half hours of the new land. She stayed with me with the dawn's here. She stayed with me and everything. She gave up on the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. And you're <laughs> like, I don't get this. Why are we watching this? But you know, sometimes when you think about it, it's, the, it's, it, to critique the bourgeoisie is sometimes not to attack him um, straight ahead with with a drama. But sometimes the most effective way and a more memorable way is like, you know, we're talking about this film right now in 2021 and this is a 1972 film. And um, I think it's because, I mean, this film won the Oscar, but the life of this film goes beyond the Oscars. Bunuel is an established filmmaker outside of the Oscars. And the fact that we are still talking about this and his critique of uh, bourgeois society, it's a credit on how he knows his craft, really, and how it translates to even in the most absurd of scenarios that he's putting out. It's it's not without, you know, it sounds like an oxymoron. His absurdity is not without rationale. There is always a reason behind the lack of logic. Yes. And that is why the surrealist comedy of this film means more than just surrealist comedy because it goes deeper. And I, I don't think like, you know, when, when you're when in surrealism, you're dealing with symbols, you're dealing with images that don't immediately make sense. If that's empty, then I think your exer- then the film is just an exercise in style. It's not yes. it's not staying true to the film movement. I think uh, this is really the strength of uh, surrealism as an art movement, as a film movement. You can easily dismiss it as uh, like just filled with random. Yeah, the word, the operative word. Uh, in modern times, it's random. I don't think they they thought what in the those fuck? terms. <laughs> yes, right. uh, but uh, actually, uh, these kinds of films uh, of works they won't work at all if they didn't have internal logic uh, as an internal set of rules that guides just how exactly crazy things could get. And uh, it's uh, like the best uh, works of uh, surrealism. Uh, surrealist filmmaking uh, really, really, really know uh, what rules to break and what rules not to break. Uh, 
because right like, like what you said exactly uh, it's uh, it's just empty if uh, you just uh, try to experiment with everything for experiments uh, sake if you just try to some uh, for example uh, one of the dinner guests just sprouted feathers just because why not <laughs> but yeah. uh, it doesn't help anything like of course uh, if it did get put out uh, people would uh, like try to find meaning in it but uh, like the filmmaker the directorial intent uh, really knows that uh, this is the scope and limitation of uh, these are the scope and limitations of uh, what I could uh, make fun of, of what I could uh, stretch and elevate and mock. So instead of getting uh, like, instead of getting uh, like strange, uh, like for example, the, there's suddenly a feathered uh, French man <laughs> in mm -hmm. dinner party. Instead of uh, getting something like that, uh, you just get a group of people who can't have dinner. And it's uh, like, I think it's, uh, you can say that's a universal experience. Uh, sometimes you just can't eat, especially when you're, especially when you're, uh, sometimes you just can't eat, especially when you're poor. There are times when you have to skip meals. But uh, sometimes, even though you have uh, the money to back you up, uh, things just don't uh, go according to plan. Things fall apart. It's just that this is the way, the semi-relatable way. Uh, this is just the ammunition he used to make fun of these people. So he never strayed from that. Uh, he kept to that internal truth. And that is uh, what makes the film, despite its uh, initial uh, tendency to confuse its uh, audience. Yeah, exactly. It's you have the film has to find a truth first, because that will guide the absurdity that is to come. Um, which I think Bunuel achieved here. Um, you know, we, you know, the fact that we were talking about its layers here is a testament to how, you know, I remember like, you know, we're, we're, when we were in film school that we have a class for experimental class yes, and we don't just play around. We discuss symbols, meanings. Why is this here? Why is it there? And, um, why does this, ha what is the meaning of this? Why does it, and then we say, and things like when you get those answers from students who were like oh well you know doesn't mean anything it doesn't fly because it really doesn't um the intent shines and you <laughs> the thing is that Bunuel doesn't allow himself to to um to come across his message directly he has to go into labyrinths of like surrealist images and comedy and grotesque imagery before he could get to the message but the journey there is the one that is so must be so carefully planned so that when it reaches us like okay hmm doesn't make sense i mean um the monsignor uh, the ambassador after the shooting in the dinner the ambassador is hiding in a table eating ham that probably that's that's a <laughs> Yes, but you know when you think about it, hmm, 
after all has been said and done, terrorism, uh, there he is, the person that is from the government. And what he cares about the most is how to feed himself. Yes, enriching and, himself. Yeah. And those layers you can only get when um, it's airtight. The writing, um, and this is the kind of writing that, you know, it, it's funny in the, <laughs> you know, um, I think, I think, I don't know how you feel about this. I think it's harder to write things that don't adhere with uh, convention because then you have to, I think a writer should have to really know for a convention before he start. Like you said, you know, with the rules and all. And um, how does, um, how can you succeed with absurdity? Because there's no formula there. Um, a good script, when, when a good, good, a well formatted script can probably succeed. You know, when you have. When it's so clearly act one, act two, act three, uh, plan, payoff, uh, introduction, um, I don't know, Chekhov's gun. Wow, Chekhov's gun. Like red herring, dinoma, you know, all of those coming together. But when you have an absurdist, it's harder, it's harder, it's harder, I think. It's harder to write something like this because you have to be precise. Yes, but uh, at the same time, uh, you first have to know... Uh, you first have to know the rules you're going to break. So I I see it as just like conventional writing, but with an extra, extra layer. Yeah. So like you have oh. to go over that wall, having having planted uh, all the bricks, you then jump over it. And uh, you can see the other side. I don't think it's easier just to create a mishmash of ideas and like somehow pray to God that it will work in the final product. Well, sometimes people uh, get lucky. <laughs> sometimes uh, people get that one in a million shot. But uh, most of the time, uh, it's really like writing the, writing the absurd parts, but with the mindset that uh, you're writing a conventional uh, story, a conventional script. Because... Uh, but uh, sometimes people miss out that uh, yes, you could you can do you can do these things uh, randomly. Of course you can, and this is the kind of uh, genre that will let you do it. But on the other hand, uh, <clears throat> most people fail to to respect or recognize that uh, that yeah, there's really a lot of uh, work that goes into this, and that is because. Uh, you first have to know what you're going to write before you can elevate it, before you can mess around with it, before you can deconstruct it. So I think that uh, maybe, maybe the reason why it's hard to, to grasp or to understand that first viewing, if, uh, even if you didn't give up on watching it, it's because uh, your brain, your brain is uh, pre-wired to search for an easier way to process the ideas being presented. But uh, once you get how this, how the internal uh, logic of the form works, like that's all you need to transcend 
the that barrier. That's all you need to realize that. Wow, uh, this is another way I can look at things. Uh, I don't think uh, mockery or uh, absurdity is uh, foreign. I think I think uh, everyone on earth has experienced that. So it's just uh, like like compressing them, uh, making them uh, making them solid. Uh, that's how. That's how this uh, surreal works, which uh, are full of substance also. I think that's how those kinds of things uh, work. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, as, as a writer myself, I, I don't think I could get here <laughs> in this level of filmmaking. I think the most that I could do is play around with structure, but not in this, like, mind bending well maybe it depends on the mind <laughs> mind bending a <laughs> uh, writing because you have to think a lot about a lot you have to think about a lot of things before it all makes sense and um you know it, it's it's really rich you know because it's it's not just a comedy it's a comedy that says something more and it says something that is actually that has real life repercussions and um, darker layers, you know, with military and the inutility, inutility of the clergy in a, in a time when the military and the bourgeoisie just come together <laughs> to eat, <laughs> have dinner, and the government and the, the monsignor who, who should have probably offered some guidance Chose to be a gardener. So there's that. Um, is there there, so there, there are very many, there are a lot of like sprinkled jokes here and there. Now, some of them I don't remember anymore, but one thing that I did notice is that how it plays with sound. Yes. <laughs> it really yes. has those moments where we like um, intentionally. Uh, messing up the sound i love it i, I love it when a <laughs> film is consciously playing with its elements i love it i love it um are there other are there um elements or like aspects of the film that really struck with you that really struck right. you uh yeah like you mentioned the part where uh, the uh, the dialogue just becomes obscured with the with the random uh, train noises that's also yeah. uh, that's also one of our very favorite parts in the film. Uh, that was nearing the end, so there was no prior setup. There's nothing similar to it except uh, ah, uh, the only the only setup prior to that was uh, when the female revolutionary was quarreling with the ambassador in the in his house when uh, she was uh, speaking about uh, revolution revolutionary ideas about Marxist ideas, uh, Maoist ideas rather. When she was speaking about Maoist ideas, uh, the sound design suddenly became uh, yeah. yeah cluttered. But uh, that that gag was forgotten until later in the later in the in the film, Just nearing the end of the film when uh, when the inspector was being told to release uh, the prisoners, the 
the upper class uh, people turned prisoners. Uh, when the when this uh, minister, when this minister was explaining to him uh, why they should be fr uh, freed, <laughs> out of nowhere, uh, like sounds of a train coming in, obscured the dialogue. And it's really like, uh, despite the initial appearance of the gag earlier in the film, it was really out of left field. Like, mm. <laughs> why, why that particular joke at that particular moment? It's, uh, it's really hilarious. I think uh, even, even, uh, even a viewer who didn't really get uh, what the film was trying to say will laugh. <laughs> At that part. Uh, speaking of other gags, yes, the other highlight for me was that uh, when they went into what they thought was the colonel's house, when which uh, they were invited to take dinner in to share the, their dinner with, uh, it suddenly turned into a stage play. <laughs> that was really crazy. Uh, the setup was. Uh, the setup was impeccable because the gag started simple. They started noticing uh, labels in the items, in the what turned out to be props. And then uh, there was this uh, waiter who dropped uh, two pieces of uh, whole chicken. Yeah. And, and then he just picked those up and served it uh, like nothing happened. And what the like in the film so far, you're going to expect the 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 bourgeoisie to like get angry. What are you doing? Yeah. Why, why are you serving us this this uh ruined uh, items, food items? And then they turned out to be plastic props. Yeah. <laughs> like why? <laughs> uh, that was. Yeah, I, I can't explain. That was brilliant. Uh, and like I said, uh, most of the people left, but uh, two remain. I think the it was the bishop and the the husband of the first couple, the couple who invited the others into their house. <clears throat> the the station was <laughs> guiding them with their lines, and they for a moment they went with it. And then it turned out to be a dream. Like that was the first, that was the first instance that uh, something turned into a dream. And like I said, like you could split the film into two parts. The first part was uh, there was still like a uh, more or less uh, linear flow of continuity. <laughs> and then uh, Goodwill started to take things to extremes. And then the cop out was uh, that they would always turn out to be dream sequences. Uh, that was funny because uh, it gave him license to to like turn things up a notch and every time. Like you're uh, you're not content with just uh, making these people miss uh, their dinner. You have to you have to make them participate in the play. You have to shoot you have to have one of them shoot their uh, host. You have to have them arrested or get shot uh, by a by a riot squad. <laughs> it's 
it really it really says something but perhaps uh, like those were all uh, all those were all high level gags uh, one of the early gags uh, which showcased the like absurdity of the entire thing i'm glad that they chose that to be the first uh, scene uh, the first uh, like out of left field scene when they went into a restaurant whose uh, owner uh, uh, to a restaurant under new management, <laughs> which was uh, turned out to be a euphemism for the owner having died just a few hours before. Like, it's something that could happen, but won't <laughs> in real life. So, it's not really something like something that would turn into a dream sequence. It really could be a like, comedy of errors that could happen in real life. So, I'm glad that it's such a strong, such a strong joke was used in the first part of the, as the first gag of the film. Yeah, <laughs> the film has a lot, has a lot, and um, there is a part of me that selfishly thought that would Bunuel would even push it harder, uh, in terms of the absurdity. But to think about it, um, we. The film is also gifted with a cast that is so in tune with the film. Yes. I mean, these actors are maybe intentionally not in tune with the film, and they just get lost. In it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's it's pleasurable to see these wonderful actors. Some of them I get to see already in a few films. Like for example, I'm taking a look at some of the actors, like Fernando Rey. I probably saw him somewhere. He is in the French Connection, I think. Mm. And then uh, Stéphane Audran was in Babette's Feast. And Michel Piccoli, the, the name's familiar. <laughs> I must have seen him somewhere. <laughs> but um, this is a really strong cast. And I think you really have to have a strong cast with a, with a concept this high wire. Yes. Because you have to sell it. Um, you have to sell the absurdity with the people actually involved. Yes. And yeah. Because uh, you just don't want it to be. You want it to be grounded in uh, in reality. You want it to be relatable, even yeah. when uh, such a like the won't happen in real life. You want it to be relatable. You want to show how a certain group of people uh, will react to these kinds of uh, implausible scenarios. Uh, that when you don't have a strong uh, cast of characters. Like that's already fifty percent of the strength of the material gun. Uh, you could only do so much with the blocking, camera placement, yeah, uh, staging, and misansen. You could only do so much, uh, but when uh, you don't have the cast to back it up, uh, like that would be a hard uh, effort uh, done to waste. So I'm really glad that. Uh, because uh, when you have a cast this strong, like you said, uh, we're not uh, we're not even uh, talking about performances until we brought up uh, that these are actors. Uh, yeah. So, right. So if this were a uh, like lesser film, we would already be delving into creative choices uh, and such and such uh, how the actors chose uh, 
to do <laughs> you, you get the idea so because that because they carried the film so well uh, we really don't think along those terms we think uh like they really encapsulated the 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 characters they are supposed to depict to parody very well yeah and and actors who have to carry such I don't know big ideas or bigger di- big ideas in a material that refuses to address them directly and still has to have to be in sync in this uh surrealist comedy again that that tone is so tricky and you have a cast that just nails it it's a it's a delight to um see actors that are so um so game to explore these kinds of like what the heck you know these <laughs> kinds of films and you know in our discussion it made me even realize more than what the heck is going on with the oscars that year they embraced this totally left field film from perhaps you know one of the more well-known figures of world cinema at the time um i mean I have uh, I forgot to mention yes I have also seen the exterminating a- angel and I have seen it before this one I've made it a point because a friend of mine told me because when I told my that friend that hey, I'm gonna watch the I'm gonna discuss that well well you have to watch the extermination angel first like okay sure and uh, I you know that one was also good um, I think this one just pushes it even harder. That the concept of being confined because on the exterminating angel they're literally confined in a room but with this one they are confined in a larger sense like like the world is confining them because even when they walk out the road on the wide expanse of the countryside they are still trapped and how do you um put that in the storytelling it's it's uh you know, I think it it is a natural tendency for us to talk about this film more on a conceptual level than on a filmmaking yes. level, and um, yeah, but it's fun, you guys. You can watch it; it's really fun, <laughs> and you can just take it for what you know, um, shallow viewing. It's fun, or you can decide to decipher it and stress about it and try to decode everything and be like, <laughs> sure. But either way, I think this film holds up and it really works very well. Um, yes. Is there anything else I'd like to add or mention about the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie? Uh, you mentioned, yes, I have. You mentioned the 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 scene where they were just uh, walking around in a straight path, a straight road, going wherever, like they're in the wide expanse of the countryside. I really like uh, in my uh, in my first uh, viewing, I really didn't get what that was supposed to be about. Uh, of course, uh, that was the shot was repeated uh, three times. I think they were supposed to mark the uh, uh, end of uh, acts. Maybe you can never say for sure with these kind of films. Uh, but now, <laughs> but in this, in my second viewing, uh, I really appreciated those more. They were necessary breaks, and uh, like you said, I never really noticed this one. Uh, you said that they were uh, trapped encompassed in the in the notion that there's no dinner for them uh, essentially but these are these are scenes detached from the main storyline 
show, yeah. just showing the uh, characters walking, going somewhere, anywhere. Uh, like uh, given what everything we just discussed, yes, uh, you can really take that as a that the character self-aware trying to get out of the film, trying to get out of their predicament. It's uh, there's nothing really to like delve into further with those scenes, but uh, like I reappreciated the what uh, the creative choice behind showing that uh, thanks to our discussion. Yeah, until the very end, <laughs> they're still walking, and the film didn't didn't cut to black. <laughs> uh, Credits rolled. They're still walking, so they're still hungry and thirsty, and um, that's on the bourgeois people. Um, yeah, <laughs> this film is a lot. So I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to think of like what else to say, but maybe I should just give up because that's it's a lot. Et pour montrer votre valeur, vous avez invité à dîner avec vous. Et pour faire croire qu'il avait assisté à ce banquet. Mon Dieu, mais qu'est-ce que je fais ici, moi Vous avez endormi avec un narcotique. All right, so let's talk about how the discrete charm of the bourgeoisie won at the Oscars. I mean, I want to know. Um, so it premiered in France in May 15. It screened at a New York Film Festival in October 13 and um, was released in the United States in October 22. Again, this was France's fifth win and 13th nomination. So it had a healthy awards run at the time. Um, New York Film Critics Circle gave it Best Film and Best Director. National Board of View gave it um, one of the top five foreign films of the year. Uh, and then, what else? Golden Globe nominee for Foreign Language Film. At the BAFTAs, it, uh, it was nominated for best film and director and music and it won actress and screenplay original screenplay and at the oscars it was also nominated for best original screenplay um but that award was won by i forgot who won that year oh my gosh actually the one who won that year is the candidate all right so um Again, I, I I have no idea. I think it's just Bunuel being such a big name and uh, and the film being so well really received, <laughs> well released, well received because this is so out of the Academy's wheelhouse, um, especially at the time, even now. Um, so I think we can just go with the films that were nominated alongside it. So the films that were nominated were. 
The Dons here are quiet from Soviet Union. I love you, Rosa, from Israel. My dearest senorita from Spain. And the new land from Sweden. All right, so you've seen two of these. Which one would you like to discuss first? Out of the films you mentioned, the uh, two films that I saw uh, have what you can say a uh, superficial uh, similarity uh, in that uh, they both uh, tackled uh, uh, traditions and, uh, and taboos and mm -hmm. uh, breaking those breaking those two yeah specifically with gender yes exactly yeah. so i would like to talk uh, about uh, my dearest senorita first all right my dearest uh, senorita from spain spain i love it when you call me dearest senorita all right so this one best actor in chicago <laughs> that was a bad joke all right so it is about um a 43 year old spencer named adela who was yes. living um in a, a pro in the province yes. um and he was never really attracted to men and um he lives with uh his her maid i'm already getting confused all right so then um, he seeks uh, uh, professional help with a doctor. And then she realizes, she finds out actually, that she is not a woman but a man. So Adela then takes a new identity as Juan and moves to the capital and then goes back. Um, to try to um, live a new life with his new identity. But then he uh, he, he sees Isabelita, his former maid. Um, this is a groundbreaking film in Spain. This is the first film that talked about sexual orientation. Um, a taboo, especially during the Franco regime that we've been mentioning a while ago. Uh, my dearest senorita, what do you think of um, this film? <laughs> All right. Uh, yes, aside from the fact that you could uh, say that the subject matter is controversial, it's really, really a very, very sweet film. Like, uh, it doesn't, uh, like, it's not heart-wrenching in all the negative ways. Like, you... You will start rooting for this, uh, like innocent. Yes, you can say that this is an innocent kind of love, because uh, even if you're forty-three years old, if your whole identity is turned upside down, you could say that it's uh, like you're uh, reborn again. <laughs> That's a redundant thing to say. You can say that you're reborn, born once more into your new identity. And along with that comes uh, the attendant uh, innocence of something that you only get to experience for the first time. And uh, the first, the first uh, thing that really struck me, because the opening shot of uh, my, dear, my dear senorita is of Adela looking at the mirror, being attended to by her maid Isabelita. Uh, my first, my first uh, impression was... Uh, for those of you who have 
uh, who's uh, who have watched uh, Monty Python, uh, the seminal comedy group from the 70s. Uh, they have this uh, tendency to dress up as uh, uh, elderly middle-aged women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the Pythons, Terry Jones, uh, she was one of uh, he was one of the most uh, prominent. Uh, he has one of the most prominent depictions of these uh, uh, women uh, characters, which they call pepper pots. Uh, so what's the relation? Uh, well, uh, I didn't really, like I said, I didn't look into the film, so I didn't know that it was going to be about uh, like uh, sexual orientation or sex change. So yeah. my first impression was, this woman really looks like Terry Jones as a pepper pot. Oh. Uh, and like that, uh, even having thought that, uh, I never realized that it, this was a actor in drag. Mm-hmm. Like it really works. Uh, like the performance really sells it. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe during the middle of the film or after the film, you will uh, come to think, uh, how come, uh, how come uh, Adela never realized that she was a man. But uh, when you're watching it for the first time, not knowing uh, that part of the like casting process and such, or any synopsis of the film, like you would really believe uh, the performance really says it that uh, Adela really is a woman. Like her mannerisms are on point of uh, of a 43 year old spinster living alone, spurning uh, all offers of marriage, and uh, she's not. I uh, know. Uh, like when I say she's spinster, maybe you'll think that uh, she's a loner or something along those lines. But no, she's an active part of the community. Like she attends uh, functions. Uh, like she's well known by her neighbors, and she's uh, well doted upon by uh, her uh, her maid servant. So the the time that. <laughs> the the scene where I get I got to realize that uh, this is not what it all uh it's not really what it seems to be so the first time that the illusion was broken for me when I realized that this film is not just uh, a simple film about country life in Spain was when they showed Adela like applying shaving cream in to, to her face. Actually, uh, I missed that the first time, but when the scene continued, I realized, okay, so maybe there's a reason why I thought she looked like Terry Jones in drag. <clears throat> so even having uh, seen that, like the scene where she goes to the doctor and the doctor tells her that uh, all this time she was biologically a man, that scene really worked for me. And the corresponding scene afterwards, when she, when he rather, uh, moved to the city to Madrid to disassociate himself from his former identity, from his past, uh, they showed they sh- they showed the uh, numerous uh, uh, they showed a montage of the city of uh, its inhabitants, and then they highlighted uh, the character of Adela. Now going by the name Juan. Uh, 
they they kept showing him uh it is back to the camera so the sense of anticipation uh leading up to when we finally see his face he grew a mustache <laughs> uh like it really works it really works that uh this is really uh someone who realized that the life they lived up to that point uh had to be this this entangled with this associated with uh this really a guy even with this age uh, this really uh uh child in the body of an adult trying to learn how to grow up again how to approach the world again and falling in love for the first time like it's really like it's, it's really charming it's a very sweet story um i i actually kind of agree you know um you know when i also don't read when i watch films i i've made it a point this season to not read um summaries i i don't know if i started in the 80s i think in the 80s i started not reading um the synopses of the films because i tend to have an expectation and then you know in our age of uh in the internet who knows who writes the summaries that we get because there are some there is a sub there are summaries that are so like that didn't happen until the last 30 minutes <laughs> why are you talking <laughs> as if that's the entire story so with my dear senorita i didn't i didn't know and um when i when i came in and my mom watched and you know again this my mom watched it and she has her like own comments and me like don't judge her don't and then i guess i didn't know what would it be about i thought this is going to be like a like a, a i don't know a middle-aged romance probably like um but then when it was unveiled that when we when the character discovers she, she's actually a man um i thought oh Oh, and then it clicked with me that oh, this is a story about um, of sex change, uh, transitioning, um, and it's a, it's uh, it's a really sweet small scale drama comedy, that I think it's sensitive enough in its depiction of its main character, because it really tried to show what it's like to, um. And sensitively, you know, show um, the challenge that he had in trying to start all over again, live a life, you know, with the with the problems of like probably people not accepting him, knowing his past, or what he is, or you know, or even a suspicion, and like there is this insecurity with him that just I don't know that was my I mean I've been talking like especially in the more recent episodes like when I get a film that is kind of like more distant to me in terms of age I have I tend to have like I need a way in because it's not in my time it's a different sensibility it's a different kind of story and my way in is his insecurity in his identity it it goes beyond um 
him and his sex. It's it's him as a person. He is insecure. And what a thoughtful performance from the lead actor. I, I have to mention a name. The lead actor is uh, Jose Luis Lopez Vasquez. What a thoughtful performance from him. You know, it's... Um, there's nothing... I mean, you know, when we talk about now and, you know, casting... And is it right that, you know, a cisgendered actor played this role? You know, we are operating in the 70s. So I think you will have to, we'll have to take the film for what it is. It is a film from the 70s. But also understand that, you know, at the time, it was groundbreaking. And even, like, more, more close to 50 years. I think 50 years. <gasps> 49 years now. Um, It's still a thoughtful... It did. It did. I think it did it best to try to understand and explore that kind of life, and um, this is this is a film. I think this is the only film that I genuinely enjoyed, because um, the others are tough to watch. Mm. But this is a really yes. genuine. Aside from bourgeoisie as well, but uh, uh, this is a really. Um, I was happy for the character, especially with that end. Um, I don't know about that line, but, you know, that end, um, I don't know. It, it comes up as simple yet fully realized. Yes. Yes, that's exactly how it would be. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you also have to point out that uh, usually when, usually when people uh, with no knowledge about the subject or no extensive research about the subject, Essentially, people have not lived, whether literally lived or through uh, secondhand experience, uh, secondhand uh, research. But there's this tendency that uh, when something you make something uh, like that, uh, which has, which tackles a very sensitive uh, social issue or topic, usually when you don't. Like it shows it it shows uh, you can see in the film if uh, the creator uh, didn't really invest the time or experience to make the film uh, subject matter work, uh, even with the best of intentions, uh, a half baked film will come off across as a mockery. This one doesn't. Uh, yes, uh, the the filmmakers really know what they were doing. Uh, there's not a hint of uh, mockery uh, all throughout, which is absurd because uh, in this, uh, absurd in the sense that uh, in our time of uh, supposed tolerance, uh, this, uh, this uh, kind of uh, story will be easier to tell. This, would, this kind of uh, stories will be dime a dozen. So we can't really like place ourselves uh, during the or we can't really, it's not easy to imagine how it must have been like back then uh, when it was first released. I have no, I have no knowledge if uh, the film was uh, banned or boycotted or something to that effect uh, during when it was first uh, shown. But uh, even if it hadn't been uh, suppressed, it Still would have been a brave, brave, brave. Uh, still would have been a brave uh, story to tell. Uh, it's not easy to 
like it's easy for someone with a with no like actual knowledge of the subject like trying oh why not uh, let's just try to do something uh, except uh, a, a love story except uh, the man is a woman at first <laughs> it's easy to screw those uh, it's easy to screw that thing up uh, without uh, the proper love invested into the material but here we are here we have a 1972 film <laughs> which uh, feels as if it could have belonged uh, in this generation like it's uh, i don't know it's really hard to imagine how it must have been like uh, but uh, try trying to do that i have nothing but admiration for how they did it masterfully uh yeah and you know the the respect that this film had for its character not really to um to make this a saint but really just to see the person for who the person is and not as a grand spectacle which it could have done if it was an insensitive thing that just exploited on the taboo subject matter um i i really appreciate and i think um i think this deserves to be like in the history of how um cinema has forged a history of um of representation because when when even even hollywood is guilty of this and times when as late as like uh i don't know late 2000s or 2010s we still get to see like problematic depiction of like um characters who go through um a change in their life um we have a film that's from 1972 from Spain that was made under huge duress from the government. And yet it emerges as this simple, small, but honest, empathetic depiction of what it means to to change in, in so many ways. It's not just like, it's not just sex change, the change in life. Um, but also not hiding it. It puts the sto- that aspect of the story front and center and um yeah i i i we gotta pre- i think we gotta appreciate the film for what it is and when it came from where it was um from and it's just like a beautiful work i guess you know and, and i'm glad it made it here because uh i i, I you know hollywood has had a problem with uh with lgbtq films representation everything until now <laughs> and they get for some reason they went with this film as a nominee in this category i mean granted you know it it might not have had the big exposure that it got but it's still recognition and uh i'm happy that you know because of that recognition we got to see it today i love it um so you also watched um another film it's i love you Rosa from Israel. Uh, that film premiered in Cannes and it tackles the um, the Old Testament uh, law that when a man dies the widow must be married to the younger brother of that man. But in this case the the younger boy is just the 12, 13 years old. 11. And the 12, 13, 11. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. 
the eleven-year-old boy is um also kind of in love with the with the wife of his deceased brother. So like he was willing to like, all right, I'm just gonna wait until like eighteen years old and we'll continue the tradition. But um, yeah, what do you think about it? Compared to the previous film, I uh, I had a harder time watching uh, I Love You Rosa. Uh, yeah, in the uh, in that I I can't watch it uh, continuously because I have a hard time uh, watching uh, depictions of bullying in cinema, which is unfair for uh, the audiences when it first came out because they didn't have a luxury of a cosplay button like I did, <laughs> which does uh, actually disservice mm-hmm. to the film that I have to. Uh, continually stop and resume uh, playing. But uh, because all the actions of the characters in the film, whether the lead, uh, uh, lead two characters or their uh, extended uh, like secondary characters like their families, their, uh, their work associates, and the tertiary ones, like all the other people in their community, like they're all bound uh, by... Uh, for thousand year old, uh, they are all bound by an ancient law that they have no choice but to uphold. Uh, but even uh, even so, like they are aware that their entire uh, belief system, their entire lives are uh, centered around the mosaic law. But uh, at the same time, they didn't have a hard time uh, ostracizing the uh, two characters, the two main characters for. Uh, their individual uh, choices in inter- in the interpretation of the mosaic law, uh, the the woman uh, character uh, Rosa, uh, for the title character Rosa, uh, is uh, easily dismissed as a harlot, as a seducer. She was accused by her mother-in-law of killing her husband for being barren. Uh, when your only sin is being in the being in a wrong spot at the wrong time. You have to realize that maybe when they drafted the Mosaic Law, they didn't account for uh, large generational gaps between uh, siblings. So maybe they were only expecting uh, like if you, like a two-year gaps or three-year gaps, but not. <laughs> like if you're 11 years old and you're... Uh, and your brother is already of marrying age, he has to be at least 18 or 7 years older. But it is also implied that he's older than like the minimum uh, legal age of 18. So like this is literally a child uh, who has who's trying, is still trying to figure out his place in this world, uh, confronted with something that has already figured out their place for them for thousands of years. And then uh, you have uh, this uh, widowed bride who also has no choice but to abide by the law, but also expresses uh, freedom, a sense of freedom from it and a sense of independence that she's uh, seen by uh, her peers as a danger which is weird because uh, it, that's the one thing I can uh, like 
I can't accept uh, whenever there are scenes of bullying, bullying in a like in a social societal scale. <laughs> like your community is small and you're ostracized. Like the community itself is ostracized, and then they also like choose. Uh, like there was this uh, character who's accused of being a harlot or uh, adulteress. Uh, her only solace was this uh, was Rosa the widow. But uh, when Rosa the widow uh, saved her from being <laughs> lynched, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, Rosa was also put at risk. Uh, so this. Uh, the, these scenarios uh, was were all bound by mosaic law. Like adulterers should uh, must be stoned to death. Like that's the rule, I think. So, like they adhere to it, but then at the same time, they they can't help but mock either the kid or the widowed bride for adhering to the law. Like I can't. I can't really reconcile those two instances. And uh, it's, it's harder, like it complicates their family life somewhat because uh, as you mentioned, uh, Nisim as it is, uh, he had to endure uh, bullying from his, uh, from his uh, schoolmates, uh, all of whom are on the bridge of puberty. So he has this expectation stress upon him, so he acts accordingly. Like he always uh, has to insist that he's no longer a child when he's definitely a child, not just in body but in spirit. Uh, and uh, like he has a very crude understanding of uh, how to be a male Jew, of how to exercise his masculinity. Uh, and then there's this uh, older woman, Rosa, who by a bad uh, stroke of fate, uh, didn't even have to get uh, bear a child for her first husband, for her deceased husband, uh, thus setting her on a path of uh, almost uh, celibacy until uh, Nisim turns of age, turns, uh, which was until Nisim turns of age in seven years. Like you can, I can't even imagine, like how torturous that must be. Um. Yeah. What I love you, Rosa. It's um, it you know it shows a story, set in the eighteen hundreds, I guess. Yes. But you know, even if it's a, it's in the past, it's still far from when the law was composed, and um, you know, with this film, uh. I have more reservations in terms of loving it, but I do agree that it's vivid. I think it's um, it's it's actually quite fascinating on how it chose to tackle um, what kind of love is between Rosa and Nizim. What is it? Is it um, a motherly kind of love? Or is it that I'm going to play my role and be your husband when I turn 18? kind of love or is it like let's live together now and I'll be the man in the house kind of love uh, it's always 
changing for us at least and we what we perceive and the film goes into lengths to show how the law itself can complicate things already in terms of the lives of the characters the communal mob mentality yes. makes it even worse when and you know those scenes of bullying like you said you know they they're strong <laughs> they're really strong yes. scenes of like um and um i mean they're not necess- not necessarily violent in terms of like bloody and all i don't think it's that bloody right yes. but it is the anger you feel the anger you feel i don't know the violent tendencies you feel like it's going to erupt into actual physical vi- i mean it did it did but you know it's um i, I don't know it it's not it doesn't shy away from that and yes. sometimes it goes really up close with the bullying sometimes it pulls back regardless there is this um i don't know the sense that you're not we're not in control of the rhythm that the film is taking and for that it makes it even more uncomfortable because we're not really sure like how this is going to go um and the film shifts from from showing danger to just showing tender love and um it's all messy and complicated but the film never um forgets to zero in on the human aspect of it i mean at the end of the day these people that are bound by laws are still humans and in the most intimate of conversation in the most intimate of interactions um that's those are the um parts that matter it's not necessarily the big communal Uh, events as if the community is so concerted upholding morality blah 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 but it really the film wisely focuses on just the two and again it's it's a topic that can it could have been sensationalized or it could yes. have been like you know blown up for like more drama but i think with i love you it also practices restraint which i found really respectful given the tricky subject matter at times i mean i don't know in the context of uh, israeli culture but um that's an issue that the film tried to address you know that that the complications of that law what more with us that don't follow the law i mean how are we going to respond to exactly The law actually saying that an eleven-year-old boy should be with, and you know, it could have been something. It could have been milked for more drama, but the film refuses to do that. To take that easy route, and what we get to see is actual like, you know, characters just trying to live their lives, and I think it's a more honest way because we get to have a more introspective look at their lives. Yes. Yes, yes. That's, Thank that's you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's correct. Um, what is interesting for me actually is the, like the ways that uh, all the characters interpret the uh, mosaic law all in their own way. Like, like you said, the like the perfect word for this mob mentality. Uh, when you focus on the punishment aspect. When you focus on the shaming aspect, like it really like 
the law which was supposed to be a guiding path for uh, uh, for a society and exile returning back to the promised land like it it became a shackle like uh, controlling every aspect of their lives which is uh, which is very very sad uh, when you come to think of it which is why I like that the the central religious figure present in the film, which is the rabbi, it, it turned out that he was the one most lenient in straying away from the usual interpretation of the law. The, he, you, yeah, he's the one you would think would uh, adhere to it, to it more strictly, but uh, he was the one who advised Nasim uh, that the that love is stronger than the law. So what really struck me is that uh, it turned out that the person you would expect to like uphold the law to its strictest uh, level uh, would be the one who would advise a little Nassim that uh, uh, love is stronger than the law, which is a... Uh, so the rabbi character, uh, he was present uh, for most of the film, uh, he officiated the like the first the first uh, flashback scene, which is the funeral of uh, Raphael, the the dead husband of the widowed Rosa, and he was also the tutor or the teacher for the boys in the community. So he really is established as a like authority figure on all things uh, sacred. So it's a breath of fresh air that uh, for all, like his interpretation of the law is the most, uh, is the more sweeter compared to even the two characters, uh, Nisim and Rosa. Nisim's interpretation of the law is uh, like, it's like a juvenile understanding of uh, responsibility. I have to do it, so I must do it. Like, so where's where's the? There's no actual. There's an illusion of choice. The choice he thought he made was uh, actually fostered upon him by the expectations of his uh, elders, of his peers. And uh, while they accept that, uh, while they uh, all along, while they enforce that uh, expectation on him, they also mock him for going through with that expectation, which is uh, really infuriating in a cloistered community you know, to undergo all that. Uh, yeah, I agree that, that that rabbi has um, luckily has shown his wisdom in providing the more humanistic approach with the law, you know, because, you know, with the, <clears throat> with the community so rigid and so hypocritical, you know, I think you know, the act of stoning, I see it actually as something deeper. I think the the characters there don't, I mean, I, I don't support stoning. Don't put, don't quote me like that. <laughs> but I'm saying that the act of stoning is actually, it's it functions like as a reminder to be like, all right, here's someone being punished for this crime. The people tasked with stoning should actually have the reflection like, well, if this person is being punished for that, I should not do that. 
that's that's the more human side of of a of a tough <laughs> aspect of the law, the stoning part. You know, that's a more uh, I don't know deeper way to look into it. But these people d- didn't see it that way. They saw it as an opportunity to gang up on someone and unleash their animalistic, hypocritical, like self-righteous asses to other people. So again, I don't condone stoning. No, not now. I mean, no, no, no. Stop. Anyway, uh, with the rabbi, like I said, it's it's a very humanistic um, approach to law and the believers because, you know, like I said, um, the rabbis are like, um, we actually expect that he would uphold it like in the highest level. The highest level. Woo! <laughs> anyway, that... <laughs> I, just ha- I just thought of it two minutes ago. So that aspect is really refreshing. And I think when we get to see ultimately the love whatever it is and all its complications and the film refuses to simplify that um it's a bit, it's also a short film it's it's a bit short and it's also can, you can watch it like casually i guess but it understands the complexity of the situation and i think that is what we must take or we I, I I took from this film is that you cannot just like rubber stamp something and like impose a law like rigidly to, to everyone because there's a we're talking about human beings abiding laws and you cannot just like strip the law off its humanity otherwise we're just going to be a bunch of self-righteous a-holes trying to pin each other for crimes that we oh we fail to do this and then we pull each other down instead of lifting each other up um but you know there's also commentary on gender of course because you know the whole setup like the woman not really free to choose what's next for me (laughs) i have to wait for the younger brother to waver like no i'm not gonna get married otherwise she's stuck with that um those are the two films that we've both seen i have seen the two other nominees, The Dawn's Here Quiet from Soviet Union. Uh, it premiered in Venice. Um, it's about it's about uh, a commander, I think, a commander who it's a, it's a major who is so pissed, um, is so pissed that he has soldiers that are drunkards and womanizing. So he asked for new soldiers. So he was given with a soldier, a group of female soldiers <laughs> because they don't drink and they don't womanize. And, you know, he was so not receptive to the idea. But he really started to have a really good bond with a company of female soldiers that he had. And The New Land, which is the sequel to The Emigrants, it's about a Swedish family traveling to Minnesota to start a, a better life. Um... This is fascinating because this is a sequel, and yet this is the first one I saw. <laughs> so I saw the sequel first before the the part one. Um, I just have to say, uh, the New Land won the Golden Globe. It tied with the Emigrants. So part one and part two tied at the Golden Globes. How amazing! And also National Board of Review top five and best actress, and also National Society of Film Critics best actress for Liv Ullman. I just have to say, the Dawn's here, quiet, the new land, love him. So, 
Um, we have one film from this year that's also not in English and was also nominated for an Oscar. It's Murmur of the Heart from France, directed by Louis Mal. And it's nominated for Best Original Screenplay. And it is about uh, a young boy. It is about a young boy who um, is starting to have experience, you know, sexual maturation in his age. Um, despite a heart problem, um, never really stops boys. Uh, so, um, what do you, and his complex relationship with his mother. Uh, what do you think of this film? All right, so out of all the films I mentioned so far, uh, this is the first that I've seen. As I mentioned before, I didn't really search for what the films were about before I chose uh, before I watched them. So I chose at random. Uh, Murmurs of uh, Murmur of the Heart, right? Uh, Murmur of the Heart uh, was the first film I saw out of the selection, and um, I really have to say before anything else that. Uh, and I really have to say before anything else that I'm really envious as a 21st century uh, filmmaker and audience uh, going back to films from the 70s uh, era. Uh, like this is a kind uh, the films I watched that shown a, uh, really showed the kind of filmmaking that I think would really be impossible to uh, replicate today. I can't really explain it, but... Uh, so going into Murmur of the Heart, I really, really was not expecting anything uh, from the first scene. It showed that two, two uh, schoolboys, two French schoolboys uh, in the 1950s uh, asking for donations uh, and then uh, turning out to be store thieves. Like there's really a, like it revealed that uh, like it subverted the expectation uh, like from the get-go that uh, this was going to be a straightforward film. So watching uh, Murmur of the Heart, uh, you can't really anticipate uh, where the film is going to lead into. Uh, seem just like a regular slice of life at first. But uh, like it really like dove in into sensitive topics like uh, I can't really say that I can relate to that kind of adolescence like it's, for me it's a uh, next level like everything that can be explored had to be explored <laughs> you know like uh, like uh, rebellion like sexuality Sensuality, even like it's really a hard film for me to like to go into to talk about, but I can say for certain that uh, for all its uh, perceived uh, incongruity, like the finale, the climax of the film, uh, really. For, for all that I've said about the incongruity of the film, 
I can say for certain that uh, the film earned its ending. And it's uh, it's really a well-earned ending. I'm sorry for being a shit. <laughs> I'm sorry for being such a like shit a film reviewer. I can't really grasp. I can't really decide how I can explain the film. <laughs> no, but the thing is, this is a hard film to discuss because of its subject matter and how it tackles yes. tackles <laughs> tackles that subject matter. Um. When I think about it, like I, you know, it's 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 bad. When I the thing that I could say is I liked it, and I'm like, no, sir, you're a podcaster. You have to expand on that. Like, no. But with Murmur of the Heart, it's um, uh, it's it's brave because I think it tries to explore something. This is another taboo. Yes. Um. You know, the main character has, you know, he's having a sexual awakening. He's really close with his mom. And somewhere between there are, so he starts to have incestuous tendencies. Um, which I think is handled with care and thought it's honest it doesn't shy away and yet it's not exploitative it's also um it's also a little bit of a comedy drama so it's also a bit fun to watch and you get to understand his hijinks as a trying to be a man (laughs) you know at a very young age like sir (laughs) calm down (laughs) um with with his journey i think it's 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 clear and um for some re- oh my god I'm not I'm not going to say anything personal no um uh, I almost said it with this film I think it's just um I don't know I I I I'm surprised that um this film we have a film like this that's willing to explore those grayer areas of relationship you know with with what happens um when a boy becomes a young man and you know the things that are pure that like you know um what there are things that starts to get tainted with malice as one grows older and with his uh and he's also like in an environment that is uh especially with his the the boys that are like a little bit older than him kind of like pushing him to be um, the hypersexualized teenager that he would probably become, and we actually get to see this young boy lose his virginity to a, a sex worker, as well as pushed by his friends and then get interrupted by his friend as well. So you know there, but it's also funny with <laughs> like, oh no. Um, but I think Murmur of the Heart is a film that refuses to settle in the possible complications. And complexities of its subject matter, and for that, I, I think it's a brave one. It's not not because it, just because it tackles this subject matter that is, can be considered taboo, but on how it handles that because it's not a moralistic look on it. It's almost matter of fact, and it's even, um, kind of a, I don't know, 
it knows how stupid the main character could get. And for that, I think we get something that is more honest to the age of the person and, you know, the exploration it does at that certain age, like transition between boy and young man and how it relates to sexuality at the time, like in terms of like, um, I don't know, and the environment that cultivates that and how it affects on the pre-existing relationships that he has and how those can change, especially with his mother. Um, I think it's a sensitive one. It's a sensitively done take on, again, a potentially taboo. We are with taboo relationships in this podcast. Yes, yes. I really noticed that uh, the only, (laughs) from the films I watched, the only rule breaker is the literal rule breaker, you know. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and like you're right uh, Murmur of the Heart is a very nuanced state on complicated relationships uh, complicated relationships that's putting it lightly but uh, uh, like I can't really describe it any other way uh, I think it's a tale of about two broken people like uh, trying to figure out how to be cool, and uh, like the way they found it, like it's not an argument for incest. Uh, it's not an argument for incest, but uh, I think this tale. Uh, I think this story is a tale of two broken people uh, trying to find a way to be. Uh, to be complete again and they find it in the least likely person they would they should find it from but uh, even so uh, it, uh, it's uh, even even when it's like that uh, it's really like you said it's handled uh, really masterfully tastefully and uh, I can't really think of, uh, I can say anything bad about the film. It's not, uh, it, it does not condone what it shows. Neither does it condemn it. Uh, it's just there. It's just a uh, uh, projected uh, like ending to the story it told. If that makes sense. Yeah. It does, and uh, and I think that what's that's what makes it remarkable, is that um, it's it just try to be honest in that story, and I don't know if that story is gonna be told now. <laughs> I don't think it probably would, but you know, um, at least we got it. And these are the film is one of those films that is willing to go to the more uncomfortable sides of human relationships that do exist and I think must be addressed but it has to be handled with care and I think this one it does um, so that's Murmur of the Heart <clears throat> um, nominated for Best Original Screenplay alongside the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie alright so we this year there are 22 submissions the first timer is quite 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 um, and I think this is the only time that Kuwait submitted, I think. Or maybe just one of the two times that it submitted. 
Um, so some of the films that were submitted that I think are well, worth mentioning is um, mm, How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman from Brazil. It premiered in Berlin. It's about a Frenchman who tries to um, stake a claim to Brazil before the Portuguese colonized it. And then the Goat Horn from Bulgaria. It won a special jury prize in Carlo Vivari and Silva Hugo in Chicago. It's about um, a goat herder whose wife has been raped um, and had died of suffocation, goes to the mountains to kill the rapists of his wife one by one. Trotta from West Germany, permitting can. I, 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 I think I'm wrong. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Under the Flag of the Rising Sun from Japan, one woman searched to find the truth about her husband's death in World War II. The Cruel Sea from Kuwait. Um, it premiered in Venice. It's the first film to be made in Kuwait. It's about um, a crippled pearl, dri- pearl diver who forbids his son to do to go diving for pearls as well. This is available on YouTube with English subtitles. Not the best quality, but it's available. And I think it's just, it's important for us to like, I don't know, preserve films, I guess. And um, this is the first one from Kuwait. So I think, you know, just to get to know other cultures even more. Uh, Mirage from Peru. It won a Golden Globe. Uh, it got nominated for a Golden Globe. And was premiered in Chicago. It's about a young man who inherited a broken down estate. With no explanation on what happened to that house. And then Pearl in the Crowd from Poland premiered in Cannes. It's about um, miners who went on strike. When the owners of a mine decided to close the mine by flooding it. Um, this year, I, and as much as I tried to highlight some Filipino films this year, I cannot find like a remarkable one. So I think, I don't know, maybe this wasn't a good year. Probably, I don't know. Um, one remarkable film from world cinema is Solaris from Cannes, a Soviet Union, premiering Cannes. It's a little bit Andrei Tarkovsky. I'm just going to read a summary. It's about a psychologist who is sent to a station orbiting a distant planet in order to discover what has caused the crew to go insane. And oh my gosh, I forgot another film that was submitted. Roma from Italy. It's directed by Federico Fellini. Uh, it's about... Um, oh, it's also non-linear. It's about uh, unconnected scenes detailing the life in Roma. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I, that's the reason I skipped it. All right, so J.M., now we'll get back to the film that we've been talking about, the discreet chum, the bourgeoisie. Hey. After seeing like four films for this podcast, I have seen six. Um, do you think it's a worthy winner of this category, a deserving one? Yes, I agree with the Academy's choice of uh, choosing bourgeoisie as the best foreign language film winner. I think uh, it really shines above uh, its competition, not just. Uh, because it uh, chose to tell its story non-linear in a different fashion. Uh, it's, it's also technically proficient. Uh, it uh, highlights uh, like what film 
not just uh, story, not just acting, uh, not just everything else. Uh, it really highlights uh, what film uh, can like be if it uh, like just manages to like tease itself a little and uh, get out of its comfort zone. Not saying that uh, I think like story wise or theme wise, all the other films we we've discussed, uh, they all went <laughs> out of. Uh, their shells uh, way more than uh, bourgeoisie, but uh, maybe it's uh, also the the uh, my, my bias towards uh, like surrealist uh, cinema, surrealist comedy, uh, uh, reflecting in my choice. Maybe if uh, maybe if I were to choose uh, some uh, another film aside from bourgeoisie, I would uh, choose uh, my dearest senorita. I think. Uh, because uh, like it's uh, it dealt with taboo in a in a more like sweet mannered way, but but that's it. That's, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, sure, I don't mind it. You know, I I like I said I I I like and I admire the discussion of the bourgeoisie at arm's length. Um. It's something that I can see myself rewatch. Probably not too soon, but I can see it. I can see rewatching it and just enjoying it. But at the time that I watched it, um, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of chill with it. Like you know, I like it. Don't love it. Um, but in the context of the winners that the Academy has given, this is wild <laughs> that they went in this direction. The seventies, like I don't know what they were taking in the seventies. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um. You already mentioned that your number one would probably be my dear senorita. And then your number two, I guess, is uh, Bourgeoisie. And number three is I Love You, Rosa. Yes. Um, that will also be my ranking of the three. But above my dear senorita is The Dawns Here Are Quiet. And my actual number one would be The New Land. Um... This is a good year. I don't think we had bad films. I mean, um, we I cert- the level of passion certainly varies, but I think each of the five films gave something at least interesting and worthy to look forward to in the past. And also Murmur of the Heart, you know, that was nominated for original screenplay. I'm glad I did it. Um, it's uh, worthy to be watched. So, um, JM, thank you so much for joining me for this um, episode. Um, I... Ay, 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 you know? Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person. Again, yes, yes. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. Like, what's happening? Oh my gosh. Can you tell our listeners again where can they find you on the internet? All right, so uh, I have a portfolio of my uh, my undergraduate college uh, works uh, at vimeo.com slash Michael That's my full name. And... Uh, uh, if you can, you can also check out uh, my girlfriend, uh, Christine Silva's uh, works. Uh, she goes by the online name uh, Frameweaver. So there's uh, her Instagram account, instagram.com slash Frameweaver. And her uh, website, which uh, features her uh, undergraduate uh, uh, film project, uh, frameweaver.com. And uh, I think uh, since uh, we've talked about uh, my undergraduate uh, film uh, thesis as well. 
I'm going to leave with Carlos a link uh, where you can watch it for free. Oh, wow! I haven't seen it in years. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, that would be... I would be honored to get to share that with our listeners. Uh, it will be in the description down below. YouTube! <laughs> in the episode description. <laughs> Click here to subscribe. Um, so... <laughs> All right, well, there's that. And then you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana. This podcast at One Inch Barrier. This podcast is everywhere. I'm also on Patreon. Final bonus episode of the season is on Sunday. And um, after this episode, two more episodes before we wrap the 70s. And then we get to the 60s. And then the final season. So the end is near. Oh my gosh. Like, what is longer? My podcast or the pandemic? We'll find out. It's going to be so, a great again, measuring tape. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a competition which uh, finishes faster. Yeah, I hope the pandemic finishes faster than my podcast. It, it has to, you know? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it has. It and the to. next time, it would be like recording with people in the same room. Yes. Not in like disparate places. But again, Jim, take care. And because you're in like, you're somewhere and uh, I'm here. But I'm wishing you all well, everyone. This is a goodbye for now. And together, let us break the one inch barrier. <laughs>